So, good morning again. And, uh, I'm uh, pleased to be exploring uh, in this uh, three-week period the, the theme of connecting our inner practice more fully with our expression in the world, in our work, in our families, in our uh, attempts to respond to the needs of the world. Last time, I talked particularly about the uh, model of the bodhisattva, uh, which is this, for me, very inspiring model of uh, connecting our inner work with that wish to help others. It's a very powerful model from the uh, Buddhist tradition. I also recalled how we find some version of this connection of inner and outer work, uh, of spirituality and uh, community service, service to others in most spiritual traditions. I think probably in every spiritual tradition, tradition there's some version of it. So we find the uh, indigenous shaman who's typically deeply rooted in the community and the, the um, the visions or the sometimes a solitary work that the shaman does is always uh, brought back to the community as a song, as a teaching, as a way of working with the community. We have the very uh, powerful figures of the, uh, the Jewish prophets who, uh, who in so many ways have influenced uh, um, Western culture for thousands of years. The, these these uh, men and women who deeply uh, felt kind of the call of the divine, but often expressed it as calling out what they saw as the hypocrisy of the society, the injustice, the way that even religious leaders were not following their deeper intentions, their deepest intentions, and that you know those voices of uh, you know, echo forth in so many people today very explicitly in the words, for example, of uh, Dr. Martin Luther King, who, who echoed uh, the, the words of the Jewish prophets. Or we find the life of Jesus, or we find the, the um, examples in the Indian tradition of karma yoga and of the idea that one's work becomes a kind of service that is one's core spiritual practice, you know, and outlining that model, which became the model that Gandhi used in all of his work. You know. Or we find the examples of uh, so many people in Asia, in the West. We can think of the examples of the Dalai Lama or the engaged practice of uh, Thich Nhat Hanh. We, can think of in uh, more recent times uh, figures like Dorothy Day or Abraham Joshua Heschel. There's just so many people who've expressed some version of that. Um, you know, uh, arguably, the very um, core of this country is founded on a spiritual vision that's very similar. You know, that when that uh, I like to see the vision of the Founding Fathers is actually a spiritual vision, you know, of, and if you look to some of the words like of Thomas Jefferson and the um, uh, Declaration of Independence, it's, they're very powerful, it's a very powerful document, you know, that the 
the aim of the very society is to create, create the conditions. You know, and many of us are a little bit jaded or resigned. It's helpful to go back and study that time because I think there is a, a, a deep spiritual vision of creating the conditions for uh, the optimal conditions for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. <laughs> That's the purpose, right? That's the stated purpose. And also in that document it says, if a government is not doing so well at, at this, get rid of it. That's right there. <laughs> so, uh, you know, and I was thinking of that, that that, that vision for the country is, has often been lost. I think uh, President Obama had something of that vision, even gets submerged, but that's certainly the campaign brought forth that vision. But I think it's especially been carried more by uh, poets and visionaries like Dr. King, uh, by poets and musicians, you know. I think they sometimes carry it more than the, the politicians. You know, one, uh, there's a beautiful book that was uh, written in uh, 1871 by um, uh, Walt Whitman, the poet, to, called Democratic Vistas. And he, he's, he said that what we really most deeply want in this country is what he called a sublime and serious religious democracy. Those were the words that he used. I mean, maybe we could substitute our word spiritual for religious. You know, I think it's a very, very similar vision. And he said, we have frequently printed the word democracy, yet I cannot too often repeat that it is, in a, wor it is a word, the real gist of which still sleeps, quite unawakened. It is a great word whose history, I suppose, remains unwritten because the history has yet to be enacted. You know, really echoed by, uh, by Dr. King. Again, I think the vision of this uh, inner work. Uh, uh, Whitman also said that uh, there needs to be training for this. People have to be trained to be members of a sublime and serious religious democracy. We have to be, he, in his words, properly trained in utmost highest freedom, <laughs> you know, which is in a way what we're doing here. You know, what we're doing here. And um, Dr. King said, in a real sense, America is essentially a dream. This was two years before his I Have a Dream speech. A dream is yet unfulfilled. It is a dream of a land where people of all races, all nationalities, and all creeds can live together as brothers and sisters. A deep, simple, wish that, that so many of us have, and still calling forth to be, to be realized. Uh, Dorothy Day, the great uh, Christian nonviolent activist who, you know, who many of you know founded the um, Catholic Worker and so-called hospitality houses, you know, hundreds of them across the country to, to work with the poor. She said, the greatest challenge of the day is how to bring about a revolution of the heart. And that's what she, she called for. And maybe one last, uh, for me, uh, inspiring uh, statement comes from Thich Nhat Hanh about this, I think, again, about this vision of connecting the inner work with outer expression. He said, there are important values in Western society, such as the scientific way of looking at things, the sp spirit of free inquiry, and democracy. If there is an encounter between Buddhist practice and these values, humankind will have something very new and very exciting. And so I think, I think that's happening slowly, but that's really what I want to uh, be exploring. And I, last time I, I brought up the model, the, 
model in the Buddhist tradition of the bodhisattva, which I think is an archetype. It's really something that is very, very close to the examples I gave from other traditions. The, the model of someone who knows uh, has a good sense, very good sense of the highest freedom and chooses to manifest to help others. You know, there's a, let me see, there's a, uh, some of the some of the vows I gave last time are just very powerful. What the Bodhisattva vows to do in the Zen tradition, this is the Bodhisattva vow. Living beings are infinite, I vow to free them. Delusions are inexhaustible, I vow to cut through them. Dharma gates are boundless, I vow to enter them. The Buddha way is unsurpassable, I vow to realize it. So there's, in every statement, there's a sense of an immense immensity of possibility, an immensity of challenge, and yet one is going in that direction. There's something, I was thinking, there's something about the, uh, uh, all of this that calls forth something big in us, really. You know, it's, and, and I meant a lot of my emphasis last time was that we find our own ways to do this, that this sense of connecting our inner work with outer expression can find many, many different forms that, that we may do that in our parenting or we may do that in, as uh, being a yoga teacher. But there's something about this connection of keeping the inner process going and then finding what our own gifts and vocations are to bring it out into the world and not having any particular model, you know, not have any particular model of do this or do that. But really, uh, if you remember that wonderful uh, set of lines from uh, Howard Thurman, who said, don't ask what the world needs, ask what makes you come alive, because what the world needs is people who have come alive. You know? And so that's, that's the spirit of this. And it, it, it requires um, a deep listening. You know, just like our practice in general is a deep listening. And we were talking uh, earlier this morning in the renewal of the ethical precepts. We were, uh, the, almost uh, everyone was talking about how we need to really, in our practice, be able to notice the different voices and notice the voices in our mind which are maybe uh, conditioned or keeping us small. You know, I talk with people a lot and they say, there's a voice in me which says, you actually can't be too big. You know, there's something in you which wants to be bigger. And there's another voice which says, don't be big, you'll be squashed. Or it won't work. Or you'll fail. Do you know that voice? You know? And, and so that's, um, luckily, as, as Whitman was suggesting, there is a training possible. <laughs> you know, this isn't like we just say, okay, you came to this talk, go out, Be bodhisattvas. <laughs> That's all. <laughs> you know, nothing more to say. But rather that it's, it's, very, uh, it's very wonderful that we have a sense that to combine inner work and outer work, there is training. You know, there, as that line from Whitman, properly trained in highest freedom. <laughs> Those were his lines. But there's that sense that uh, traditionally, uh, the bodhisattva goes through training. There is a training, you know, and in a way, as I mentioned last time, that training is, uh, in its essence, not different from what we focus on here on Wednesdays, what we focus on generally at Spirit Rock. It's a training in 
mindfulness. It's a training in opening the heart. It's a training in seeing more clearly. It's a training in uh, developing compassion. It's a, develop, it's a training in uh, living more ethically. It's a training in being skillful, more skillful with our action and so forth. And that particular uh, training uh, classically was expressed through what are called the paramis. Uh, Sylvia has written a whole book on that called Pay Attention for Goodness Sake. There are ten paramis and they actually uh, cover much of what I just mentioned. There's, uh, you know, there's generosity, there's ethical uh, grounding, there's renunciation, wisdom, patience, truthfulness, loving-kindness, equanimity. In the Theravada tradition, Mahayana is a little bit different. There's some different uh, ones emphasized. It's kind of interesting to see which of the ten are in both lists, you know, because the Mahayana has lists. They add also the, the importance of skillful means is, is an important emphasis. And I, and I was thinking what kind of further training might be helpful for us, you know, if we, in our uh, attempt to bridge inner and outer. And I, I was reflecting on this partly in light of having worked over the last 15 years to develop uh, training programs for people doing service and social action through the Buddhist Peace Fellowship and through the program here at Spirit Rock called Path of Engagement. And a lot of my interest was to say, are, th are there <coughs> additional aspects of training? that people need to be effective in the world or in their, in their work. And of course it's going to depend on what our vocations are and what our callings are. But we found, uh, we found ourselves wanting to add a few areas. And, uh, and you know, so we emphasize also to be skillful um, in the world. It's helpful to be trained to work uh, well with conflict to, you know, a special emphasis on speech and communication. To have, if you're, if you're trying to change the world, it's very helpful to be wise about uh, how you hold your own views, your own views about what's right and wrong, or your political views, or your social views, and to do that skillfully. There's a whole um, training in that, you know. Uh, there's, there's a value in how do we see the world through the eyes of our practice. You know, I'm, I'm thinking, I'm not sure we'll do this, but I was thinking of, in our retreat coming up in uh, two weeks, I was thinking maybe we would all watch the evening news together, you know? And how do you, how do you, uh, I remember Jack Hornfield once saying, don't do it. <laughs> Jack Hornfield once saying, can you watch the evening news and stay in your body? <laughs> you know, or can, can you see the evening news through the eyes of, dar through Dharma eyes? so that you're, you're not taken in by the conditioned models. So we actually were seeing, I, I often found it helpful to um, sometimes turn off the sound. I, I remember when we were, I'll just tell one story which just came to mind, when, we were, when I was doing a training in um, uh, body-based psychotherapy, Hakomi training, which is wonderful training, and Part of our training was how to, how to track what's going on uh, with ourselves or another person. We learned you know, like to track you know, like 15 different aspects of another person. You train what's being said, the emotions, the, the face, the body, the energy, the gestures, and so forth. In one of our trainings, we watched 
we watched um, Condoleezza Rice um, testifying before a congressional committee <laughs> and watched her body language. We, they turned the sound off and said, just watch it. And she was, unfortunately, she was, she was saying things and she was continually shaking her head <laughs> like that. <laughs> you know, and other people, I mean, we could, I think they showed some other people as well, but there was, you know, and then in actuality, some of what she said was questionably true, you know, so it was like, <laughs> very interesting. So, in any case, um, can, we, uh, can we see the world and stay in our practice and not just be taken into the conventional ways of seeing things? Not so easy, right? There's a training there. Can you understand what's happening in the world through the lens of your practice? Can you understand what's happening in your family, at work? Can you see that not through the habitual ways of seeing, but in, in, a, in a different way? And there's a beautiful uh, set of uh, guidelines that are really, in a way, further. they're not explicitly those of the guidelines, but some of you know uh, that Thich Nhat Hanh, whose work uh, as it were, came of age during war and conflict in Vietnam. And he's really one of the um, core inspirational figures in connecting inner and outer. And right at the heart of that time, in 1964, he and his colleagues uh, developed a group called what they called the Thiep Hien Order in Vietnam, which is sometimes translated as the Order of Interbeing. And he gave guidelines for how to connect inner and outer for this group, which are in the book, uh, Being Peace. There's also another book called Interbeing, which is there. But I thought I'd just read you a few of these to give you the flavor of really what we could think of these as further aspects of training. Do not, the first, number one, do not be idolatrous about or bound to any doctrine, theory, or ideology, even Buddhist ones. Buddhist, Buddhist systems of thought are guiding means. They are not absolute truth. Do not think the knowledge, number two, do not think the knowledge that you presently present, possess is changeless absolute truth. Avoid being narrow-minded and bound to present views. Learn and practice non-attachment from views in order to be open to receive others' viewpoints. Number four, do not avoid contact with suffering or close your eyes before suffering. Number five, do, do not accumulate wealth while, other, while millions are hungry. Do not take as the aim of your life fame, profit, wealth, or sensual pleasure. Do not live with a vocation that is harmful to humans and nature. Another, do not kill, do not let others kill. Beautiful list. You can, these days you can find it on the internet. So maybe I'll, maybe I'll bring it in and post it, or I don't know. Uh, it's anyway, it's very, very wonderful and very, very inspiring. It's really a set of uh, guidelines, and it really brings me to what I wanted to focus on for the rest of the time, which is that there are all, all, all these different trainings that we follow in connecting inner and outer, and I wanted to for the rest of the time, focus particularly on a really fundamental one, which is the grounding and training in what we might call ethical practice. Very much following what we did this morning in renewing the ethical precepts. And I think that ethical practice is not always taken as seriously as it should be. 
that we sometimes may think, oh, you know, I don't kill people. I don't do bad things. I don't steal. I try as best I can not to lie. That takes care of ethics, doesn't it? You know, what's more to be said about ethics, really? Meditation is really where it's at. And I think that's, that can reflect a misunderstanding because uh, ethics can be actually a profound practice. And I want to present it in a way in the context of connecting inner and outer in which I find it an extremely challenging practice. And one that I hope that uh, can inspire you to, to make it more of a practice. We often, I think, in presenting practice, we do emphasize often the meditation. You know, we don't emphasize so much the way that ethics can be a strong practice. I think traditionally the understanding is that there are these three, um, three main areas of training. One entire area is the ethical area. It really covers leading a life of integrity and covers how we act. And the second is uh, the training in meditation. The third is the training in wisdom. And so we, we often emphasize the, the, the meditative. And I think the, the ethics is really, really crucial to, to uh, deepening our practice. And as, I, as I'll suggest in a moment, it actually can be, given the challenges of our time, highly challenging if we really take the ethical precepts uh, seriously. So I think we remember the ethical precepts. And some of us, some of us repeated them uh, just uh, a little over an hour ago as we were together renewing the precepts for our community. But I'll just repeat them. And maybe I'll pause at the end of each of them and invite you to reflect just for a moment on what these mean to you. And listen for the words that they all start with for the sake of training. They are understood as something we train in. For the sake of training and understanding how we are interconnected, I undertake the precept to abstain from the taking of life. For the sake of training, and understanding how we are interconnected, I undertake the precept not to take that which is not given. For the sake of training and understanding how we are interconnected, I undertake the precept to abstain from sexual misconduct. For the sake of training and understanding how we are interconnected, I undertake the precept to abstain from unwise speech. For the sake of training and understanding how we are interconnected, I undertake the precept to abstain from substances that shift consciousness to the point of heedlessness. So the, the, the bodhisattva, or the person who connects inner and outer, 
trains to leave a lead a life of integrity. You know, so there was one um, Tibetan teacher, uh, Trangu Rinpoche, who was uh, asked by his students, how do we really respond to all the different problems in the world? And his, his answer was essentially to be a bodhisattva. He said, you must counter the negative energy with as much positive thought and action as you possibly can muster. You must make of yourself a light. You must become a beacon for others. That we lead increasingly lives of integrity. And that this is not something we even necessarily talk about, but we can become uh, influences and help in all sorts of ways, often just by our being as well as our actions. So this is the training, is to, to develop that quality of integrity. You know, at first we start off with the ethical precepts, and they're training precepts, and they're, again, they're not so much uh, external principles or rules from, from an authority that we have to follow, but they're ways that we check and monitor our own lives. And often we, uh, we especially work with the precepts to uh, become aware of when we're, if we don't actually overtly violate a precept, where we're in the so-called gray area. You know, I always think of my friend Diana Winston starting off a conversation by saying, I'm not sure this is wise speech, but, <laughs> you know, which, uh, can, which is that the little light going on when the gray area is there and maybe um, sometimes deciding to keep on going. <laughs> Any case, but, uh, but we, we, we notice, we notice when it's, when it's in the gray area and we, we train, we, when we take these precepts seriously, we find that they're actually quite profound, you know, and they keep on, they keep on uh, deepening in a way that we, we, as we, for example, um, see more into our own suffering, as we deepen our practice and know our own suffering, there's a natural compassion that develops and increasingly we um, resonate empathically with the suffering of others. We know our own suffering and we're less, it's less of a case of here am I and there is the other person and we may resonate more and more and we, we want to help and there's something about the the, uh, the, the ethical response gets deeper as we're in touch with our own suffering, that we want to help, we want to be of, of use, we want to uh, contribute, we want to help people avoid uh, harmful behavior. We want to uh, not just have the ethics be something that guides our own personal face-to-face -face behavior, but increasingly starts to expand you know, we, we, we get more, we become more ethically sensitive. We, as we study interdependence more, we see all the many ways that we, we uh, influence each other. You know, and for me, that's one of the challenging things, that when we really study interdependence and interconnection, we start to see that our actions have profound influences. And this is where ethics and following, the, following the, the principles, not to harm, not to take that which is not given, start becoming more challenging. Because we see, for example, that we are part of uh, larger systems. That ethics isn't just a matter of what I do in my face-to-face -face behavior. 
but I think we know that how I use, let's say, the products of oil has ethical significance. You know, what do I do when my government is killing and I'm committed to not killing? Is that ethically significant? If it is, it's very challenging, right? What do I do? You know, we take the first precept about non-harming and we, we may uh, really, when we look more carefully at this, we may see all the small ways that we harm. You know, when I've worked with groups on the ethical precepts, people have actually uh, started to look into even something like eating meat. Do I want to do that? You know. In the, in the tradition, it's said that to follow the first precept, one must not hate any being and cannot kill a living creature even in thought. Some lines from the Buddha. To follow the first precept is to abandon the onslaught on breathing beings without stick or sword, scrupulous, compassionate, trembling for the welfare of all living beings. That's to follow the precept. So you see it, it starts getting bigger. You know, following the precept gets larger. It expands us. It's something that expands us and potentially just as deeply as meditation might. And of course, in the long run, the ethical practice becomes meditative. It's not separate from the wisdom practice and the, the meditative practice, but we start to become more sensitive about uh, our face-to-face -face interactions and then the, the, the effects of our actions. You know, so when I've had uh, groups where we've actually looked at the precepts, people have come to see that they actually are harming in ways that they weren't first aware of. People have wondered, should I, uh, should I become a vegetarian or, or a vegan? You know, and people have wondered about that. Should I, some, should I routinely kill small, small bugs? You know, is that, am I really following the precept when I do that? You know, and people uh, can look at that. And we can, also, um, we can also then start asking the larger questions. You know, you can think of the way Thich Nhat Hanh expressed the first precept. He said, uh, do not kill and do not let others kill. If that's your interpretation of the precept, that's pretty challenging, right? How do you take that on? You know, um, you know and what's interesting is that uh, this isn't just something contemporary that, you know, in the, uh, one of the most ancient of the Buddhist texts, the Sutta Nipata, the Buddha summarized the first precept in a similar way, which says it's partly about what one does oneself, but it also has a social context. It's about what one sees going on around you. It says, let one not destroy life, nor cause others to destroy life, and not approve of others' killing. So if we follow that, what do we do? You know, I think of um, uh, Robert Aitken Roshi, who, who died about a year, a year and a half ago, who was, um, died at the age of 93, lived in Hawaii, was one of the, anyone met Robert Aitken Roshi? He was, I, I spent quite a bit of time with him. He was uh, one of the founders of the Buddhist Peace Fellowship. In fact, the Buddhist Peace Fellowship was founded on his porch in Hawaii in 1978. People were just sitting around and said, what should we do? <laughs> you know, Bodhisattvas need an organization, <laughs> something like that. Um, 
And uh, he was a tax resistor. That was his way of trying, you know, very risky business, right? Federal government does not like tax resistors. That was his way of trying to keep integrity. You know? And so he said, I cannot um, pay that amount of taxes which goes to support wars. You know? And we've had uh, foreign wars for a lot of the last 50 years, right? You know, and our, we're supporting that, right? How does that square with the precepts? I find this extremely challenging, you know. There are different ways of responding. Tax resistance is one way. It could be to um, try to bring attention to wars, you know. So what's, so you see the way that if we really take the precepts seriously, it starts becoming a powerful way of practice. That's challenging, right? What, do you, what are we going to do? You know, it can really challenge us to ask that question. Again, there's no set answer to that. You know, uh, what does it mean to say, do not kill, do not let others kill? How do we respond to killing in our communities? You know, or the, you know, it could be, and again, one can respond in all sorts of ways. I find this very challenging. If we take the precept, are we also being asked to respond in a social way? Or to our um, maybe in our um, extended families or in our communities. What does it mean to follow the precept? And I'm not saying this to induce guilt in myself or others, <laughs> you know, but more to, to spark that bigger sense of practice. And it's not that we do everything, but maybe, maybe reflecting on this leads us to, to do one or two things differently or to take on something, you know. So the second precept is about uh, not taking that which is not given. You know? And again, from one point of view, many of us may think that we don't take that which is not given, but do we do that in small ways? Are there small ways that we, that we sometimes take what is not given? You know, in small ways, I don't know, surf the internet on company time. <laughs> Might be a form of taking that which is not given or to, in some ways, uh, use something of another person without asking. You know? And then, again, there's, there's these larger and more difficult uh, social issues, you know, about how much do we benefit from an uh, economic system which takes things from other people. From an, you know, we know there's a lot more attention to the inequality in the economic system. How much does my commitment to the ethical precepts invite a response to that larger issue. We know that economic inequality is a huge issue. And of course, it's not always clear how to respond to these issues. But it's interesting to kind of take them, take this as a koan. How do I respond to, to do the precepts um, imply that I do have some responsibility there? This is what um, a Thai Buddhist teacher said, Sulaksa Viraksha. We may not literally steal in our face-to-face -face interactions, but do we allow the rich countries to exploit the poor countries through the workings of the international banking system and the international economic order? Do we allow industrial societies to exploit agrarian societies, the rich to exploit the poor generally? You know, difficult questions. Does that mean that if I have an ethical commitment to not 
allowing that which shouldn't be, um, not allowing um, things to be taken from others to, without a commitment to somehow respond to this larger situation. Thich Nhat Hanh says, prevent others from enriching themselves from human suffering or the suffering of other human beings. You know, is there a way that we could live? You know, it's partly, you know, the response might be to live in a certain way. And I think many of us are doing this. Many of us may be wanting to live more simply. This is one, one kind of response, to live more simply. To, um, you know, maybe it's to, of course, to give to those in need and so forth, you know. You know, not just far away, but also nearby. So again, I'm stating these. These are I'm stating these almost like these are koans in the sense of uh, Zen practice, meaning they're not easy to answer right away. There's something we sometimes sit with, but it's really saying, if I'm committed to ethical practice, how do I respond? How do I how do I work with that situation? You know, we could we could. Uh, we could really also see this in terms of the commitment to uh, um, work skillfully with the energy of sexuality, you know, to do that in our own uh, face-to-face behavior. But then again, the social dimensions are quite, quite large. We know that sexuality is exploited on a massive scale in our society. How do we respond to that locally or in a larger scale? You know, particularly the, the objectification of women's bodies. You know, that this is huge, right? And do I have a responsibility to uh, somehow speak out about that when it's occurring near, nearby or uh, on a larger scale? What does it mean to um, follow that ethical precept? What does it mean to follow the ethical precept on speech? You know, and to uh, work with skillful speech. Probably when I've worked with ethical precepts in terms of face-to-face behavior in our everyday lives, speech is probably the one where there's the most activity, you know, and where it's, where it's um, just to do that in a very ordinary way is very challenging. How to speak, you know, according to the gu- classical guidelines with being truthful, being helpful, coming out of a warm heart, and having good timing. Not so easy. There we don't have to look for the challenges to the social dimension. <laughs> you know, you could say, although we could, we could say, what do we do when there is untrue speech happening in our communities or in our governments? So I think uh, a lot of, I think, what is being suggested is that these are challenging. It's challenging to take these precepts, to work with speech in a skillful way, is quite hard. And then, and then again, the last one, to be skillful with substances which shift consciousness. Uh, we, again, we may look to what that means in terms of our own action and behavior. Are there ways, you know, and Thich Nhat Hanh broadened the fifth precept to mean the consumption of all sorts of things. Food, but he also included the fifth precept to include the consumption of media. Do I how do I consume the internet? I think I've mentioned here, but it's a, it's a large issue for quite a number of people that I work with one-on-one that they get addicted to the internet and sometimes stay up late and get too tired and can't practice anymore. I'm, that's come up quite a few times with people. You know, so you know, it's really about looking for uh, 
addictive behavior, how do we respond to it? How do we work with that? How do we, how do we relate to all the different media in our lives? And then again, how do we respond to the fact of addiction in the society? If I'm following this ethical precept and I have someone in my extended family who has addiction issues, would following the precept mean to try to help that person to respond? It might mean that if we interpret it, or it might mean to you know, respond to the really um, devastating situation in, this, in the country um, in regard to the use of um, substances which shift consciousness, whether it's alcohol or, or other drugs, um, that it's devastating for the society. It's also, you know, our use of drugs is devastating to Mexico, for example. You know, no one talks too much about the consumption issues, but those are there too, or just the very insane, if I can put it that way, the insane drug laws, right? Would, would acting ethically mean that we respond to that, which is causing so much pain and suffering? So I think I'm inviting a larger sense of the precepts and some, somewhat how for a period of time or perhaps for our whole lives, following the precepts could really be a major way of practicing, living with a life of integrity and having an expansive sense of the precepts is, I think, what the Bodhisattva does. The Bodhisattva thinks big, and I'm, I was refl- I'm going to close with two, two pieces. One was something I heard from Larry Yang probably a few years ago, which was really, really helpful, that for me, sometimes if I reflect on what I've been talking about, it's, it seems very big. <laughs> it can seem even overwhelming at times. Everyone, anyone feel a little bit overwhelmed at a given moment by anything I said? <laughs> a little bit. Now, let me ask another question. Has anyone ever felt overwhelmed by the notion of spiritual awakening? That small thing. <laughs> and Larry drew a very interesting parallel at one point. It really was interesting. He said, he, because you know, we're, um, the notion of awakening and having our, li- our minds and bodies be filled with love and wisdom and, and that as a possibility, when we look to my mind, my body, my heart, that can seem like a lot. And I can judge myself and think, that's not apl- applicable to me. But uh, Larry framed it something like this. He said, when you look at the immensity of awakening, can you have a sense of patience and deal with your sense of frustration about how large that is and have a sense that you are, in a way, walking this path, that it's large, but it's walkable, <laughs> and that there is a, there's a training that one can do, do to move in this direction, even though when you actually look deeply at at the nature of awakening, where you, I don't know, read the most profound text that can seem like, where am I in relation to that? One can ask that question, and yet we still keep practicing, right? There can be that sense of, it's immense, but I'm keeping on going. And and it actually gives meaning, and and there's a voice in myself which says, I am big. (laughs) I actually am capable 
of getting bigger and opening to this. You know, and there's that, there's that, uh, uh, there's that voice, and there's the voice that says, you can't be big, you're small, you know, shape up, don't even think about awakening. <laughs> you know? And when we, when we meditate, we, see, we can see those voices, those latter voices increasingly, and say, thank you for your opinion, and we can listen more to that first voice which says, I, I am bigger than I thought I was. And so we can apply this also to something like the ethical precepts and say, yes, this, this, on one level, to really practice the ethical precepts in ways that I've suggested sounds immense, right? How do we do that? But really the invitation is to, with patience, see this as a direction. You know, we know that there are people who take on some of what we've talked about. You know, maybe we think of Dr. King, or in some ways the Dalai Lama, or Dorothy Day, and they take this on more and more. And we say, I am walking a path, and it's going in this direction. And all we need to do with a path is know what the next steps are. <clears throat> and in a sense, what I hope from the uh, talk this morning is that we can be um, uh, inspired to have a bigger conception of practice, have a sense of the, what the immensity of ethical practice can mean for the life of connecting inner and outer and the life of the bodhisattva. And then we can say, not, not so much say, that's too big, but say, that I want to move in that direction, and here's the next step, or here's something that calls for me. That's really my, my hope for, for this talk. And so I think I'll close with uh, uh, some lines from Walt Whitman which is kind of expressing this in his own way. This is what you should do. Okay, so take notes. This is what you should do. Love the earth and the sun and the animals. Despise riches. Give alms to everyone that asks. Stand up for the stupid and crazy. <laughs> Devote your income and labor to others. Hate tyrants. Argue not concerning God. <laughs> Have patience and indulgence towards the people. Re-examine all you have been told in school or church or in any book. Dismiss what insults your very soul. <laughs> I'll say that again. Dismiss what insults your very soul, and your flesh shall become a great poem, and have the richest fluency not only in its words, but in the silent lines of its lips and face, and between the lashes of your eyes, and in every motion and joint of your body. So thank you for your uh, kind attention and for letting me explore this. And as I mentioned last time, I give these talks also for myself. I say, you know, really pay attention to what that guy says, you know, and, and you know, and, you know, and, you know, you should, what, your, what are your next steps as well? <laughs> okay, so any questions, reflections, comments of any kind?
Mark, yeah. What's, what was that from? Sorry, remember the list? Uh, the, the list you had about 20 minutes ago? <laughs> from Thich Nhat Hanh? Uh, from Thich Nhat Hanh? Yeah, the, the Thich Nhat Hanh order where it said, uh, do not kill, do not let others kill. Was that, was that it? Uh, the one about the Buddhist path and about refocusing and not, not necessarily taking that. Oh, yeah. Uh, that was Thich Nhat Hanh. That was the uh, 14 precepts of the order of interbeing. And it's in the book Being Peace. It's also in the book called Interbeing. And it's uh, in many sources on the internet. It's a beautiful, it's a beautiful set of guidelines for, for exactly what we're talking about. It's, it, it goes, it, it's not dated. It, was, it came out of a difficult time, you know, where he, you know, in the, uh, in the Vietnamese context, they were saying our practice has to come out of the monasteries and be there in the society. They were saying that it has to do that. We can't just practice compassion, as it were, as an inner practice, as an inner exercise. It has to be real in the society because the needs are so great. And so this was one of the core expressions of that time, trying to say, okay, if you want to connect inner and outer, what are some training principles, some guidelines? And they're, they're quite beautiful, and they were from 1964. In, in, uh, in Vietnam, and, quite, uh, and they, they have really uh, stood the test of time quite, quite well. Yeah. Maybe I can, um, maybe I can make a copy, would I, I can, maybe I can make copies for everyone for next time. How many would like that? Okay. Okay. Hope the trees would. But <laughs> So, okay, I, I can. I'll, I'll bring some, but you you can find it on the internet also. Um, please, did you have a, a question? Come. Yeah. Donald, if you emailed it to the sangha. Oh yeah. Okay, I'll email it. Uh, I'll email that to, to. There's a list for the Wednesday class, uh, and. Uh, could, uh, could there be someone who explains at the end of the class how to, how to get on that? Or who people see at the end of the class? Does anyone? I need to get on it. So. You know how to get on it? I don't know how to. Okay. Does anyone here give guidance for, for people? Okay. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think uh, Ruth would know. Where, would you? Do you know? Okay. So could we see Ruth at the end uh, afterwards if you want to be on that list? And we, we have an email list. We, it's not very heavily trafficked. It's probably used a few times a month. So it's don't, you're not in danger of having your life more complicated. But yeah, it's a beautiful, beautiful text. So did you have something? No. Okay. Okay. Other, any other reflections or comments? Yeah. I I agree with with um, the broadening of the ethical precepts yeah. to beyond your own behavior to yeah. not condoning or trying to affect the behavior of other people. But the thought that keeps running through my head is you cannot really change another person's behavior. The only thing that you have real control over is your own behavior. 
Yeah, so the question is about um, how, how, how do we respond to others' behavior, um, you know, seeing that this would be a, w a way of um, expressing the ethical precepts, but knowing that um, we can't necessarily change another person, right? Um, I think there, um, there probably are different uh, types of situations that we might have in mind, you know, for um, some of the language, for example, from Thich Nhat Hanh, where he says, do not let others kill. He's talking about actually, um, maybe we can't, maybe we can't uh, always intervene to change long-term habitual patterns, which is, I think, what you were especially talking about, right? But we sometimes can actually prevent certain negative actions from happening. You know, we could uh, probably, uh, or at least do our best, you know, even if it doesn't, you know, say just in, let's say, in a social gathering, someone is saying, is, is offering hateful speech, right, in a social situation that you're in. Uh, you could intervene and say, uh, that's not acceptable for me to hear that. I really want this group to be something that, in which there's respectful speech. You could do your best to intervene in that situation to, in, in a sense, uh, limit behavior in that context. Would you be changing the long-term behavior of the person doing that? Perhaps not in a deep way necessarily. A person may do it in other contexts but there'd still be a response in that way, in that situation. And it may not work, you know, you may not work, but uh, I think we can distinguish between um, different kinds of response. And sometimes it's just to uh, limit uh, damaging behavior. Uh, and the longer, maybe the uh, deeper roots of that behavior uh, might need to be affected in a different way. You know, so, for example, um, I mean, I think it's one reason that the drug laws don't work, right? We can have laws about drugs, but yeah, we have to ask where is the need for drugs coming from, right? That's deep, you know, deep internal sense of whatever. Uh, whatever, lack of meaning, frustration, something quite deep, you know, that leads people to, you know, uh, you know, I, know I mean, it's really, what are the sources of addictive behavior? Well, a lot of the times, the sources of addiction are uh, that, that the person's been wounded in the past in a deep way, you know, and, and drugs can be a way of coping, you know, so to really respond to that behavior, there has to be healing. You know, so then that's not going to happen with one statement or one law, right? So I think you're maybe, uh, so if we were, um, maybe a hypothetical situation, you have a, let's say, a relative who's using drugs, you might try to respond to help that person not abuse drugs, but then say, 
to really get at the deep roots of it, take something else. And I can't do that. You has to come from you or some, that'd be one example. Does that make some sense? Yeah. So it's a good question because um, it's like um, social systems or individual behavior uh, have deep roots and one doesn't change them quickly necessarily. That's, so it's kind of a, it really points to part, part of the way that I think taking on the ethical precepts is, is, a, is a big intention. It can, it can really uh, guide one for a long time. You know, I mean, I do, you know, do you think that Martin Luther King was saying, if I, if I don't get rid of racism in my lifetime, that'll really be a bummer? I think he was committed, as it were, to increase freedom and get, just take the next steps, is my sense. <clears throat> and that's, that's a hard one, you know, because you know, how, do, how do we have a sense of this long-term view for, for everything, including awakening? Please, yeah. Um, I don't have a, a, a note here. Oh. Almost everything is from the leaves of grass. <laughs> but, uh, you know, with the internet being what it is, you could, you could say, you could Google, this is what, sh what you should do. So just Google Whitman, this is what you should do. And it all appears. Yeah, I'll, I can close with that at the end. So, yeah, so I'm... I took the risk of offering what I felt was a challenging topic today. I hope that, I hope you, do you like being challenged? Yeah. <laughs> not everyone does. <laughs> I'm not, I feel, I feel a little ambivalent about challenging myself, to be honest. It's not easy, right? To take all this, you know, you know, it was, it was really a lot to be around Robert Aiken and know he was doing tax resistance and I didn't feel called to do that, you know, but it, it's, like a, become, it's like a question. Wow, he's really doing that. He could go to jail. You know, he, could, he really is living according to that value. It's really like, in, we probably know people like that who can, it's more to see what's really the, all of, all of our practice, I think, is about listening deeply to our authentic voice. And... Um, and seeing what, seeing what is appropriate. It's going to be different for everyone. Any other reflections, comments of any kind? The, the other thing I was reflecting on, I was thinking of, um, do you remember what I mentioned from Joanna Macy last time? Um, that there are multiple ways of responding. But I was thinking that uh, what, something that I learned maybe 10 or 15 years ago was the value of being, you know, for me, of being really selective with where I was trying to respond in a major way. Like, you know, we, we could interpret what I said 
today is, is demanding, oh gosh, I gotta change this, I gotta, I gotta have huge responses to violence, economic inequality, I didn't even mention ecological issues, you know, gotta, gotta deal with all this stuff, you know, ah, I think I'll go back to just being with the breath, <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, but I think, I think what I have found is that it's skillful just to see if there's one step or one response that one makes or ask your question, if I had to just intervene in one place, where would it be? That really uh, expands the ethical practice just in one place. To me, that's a skillful way to do it. So it's not that trying to take on everything doesn't work. Trying to take on one thing or two things a little bit more, that can work, practically speaking. So it might be, I want to live yet more simply, you know, and take those further steps or, you know, even though I didn't mention it, the talk said, I'm definitely going to plant a vegetable garden this afternoon. <laughs> or some could be. Okay, chance for last words. Anyone wants the last? Yeah. I was thinking of the example of someone behind me had said, you know, what if, you know, how do you, if there's someone, how do you change another person's behavior? And the yeah. example they use when, you know, being in a situation where someone says something that is, um, not why speech, mm -hmm. and you speak up. Yeah. And you say it's not acceptable. I work as a mediator, and often when there isn't a, a resolution between the parties, I think, I think often of just the little kernels of change yeah. that might have happened. Some yeah. that you may not even know. You know that that person, whatever whoever you spoke to, you know, days, weeks, months later, they may take that may change them a little yeah. tiny bit. Yeah. And the people around you might see you as a model. Uh, yeah. They may do it when they're in a similar situation and someone says something that's disagreeable. Yeah, yeah, that's great. So it's really reflecting on how in um, being a mediator, sometimes there's not much movement and one sometimes looks for small movements. And, and that a lot of the time one doesn't even know when there's movement. I mean, this is, this is sort of another side. I think the Bodhisattva, it said that the, you know, I think uh, Suzuki Roshi said, um, even if the sun should rise in the west, the bodhisattva does what he or she does, <laughs> you know. And there's something that, you know, when, when I uh, did, did the book called The Engaged Spiritual Life, uh, I did a bunch of interviews with people who could be called spiritual activists. And one of the most remarkable findings was <coughs> the um, kind of their own level of equanimity around the sense of they, keep, they, had, they had a sense of they keep on doing what they think is right and they let things be what they were. You know, I think, you know, and I, I found that over and over again with the people and also when I did reading, you know, I mean, I think, you know, I was, I was just looking last night, Dorothy Day said something very similar about that, that you don't so much get focused on the results, but you get focused on what's truthful and that really carries you. You know, and I know as a teacher um, that a lot of times um, uh, I don't know what the effects of teaching are at times. And I've had times when I thought like, uh, particularly when I, I taught for seven years in universities, as some of you know, and it's the source of quite a few stories in my book. <laughs> but I had experiences of, you know, I, I, I mentioned I tell the story sometimes of particularly teaching a group of um, 
football players from the University of Kentucky, uh, an evening class during football season. It was actually a class on ethics. <laughs> and, and that uh, they mostly had just, you know, had practiced all day and had a huge meal, and they were not into fervent ethical investigation. And uh, it was, I was a young teacher, and it was very hard, and, and um, uh, they were mostly wanting to make jokes, typically at my expense. And, you know, this was a three-and-a-half-month experience. And, uh, and I learned a lot. You know, I, I essentially uh, continually came, I learned to a little bit more, do what I thought was right, and not get attached to the results and just do what I thought was best. And then, you know, I'd have people at the end of the semester say, oh, I learned some, some of the football players came and said, oh, I learned so much. One person came a year later and told me, you know, they wouldn't say it during the class because that would be to get in trouble with their friends. <laughs> but, uh, so it was, very, it was very interesting. So there's something very important about uh, not getting too hung up on attachment to results. That's a big one. That's a hard one. And, you know, it means that you work for what you think is best continually and have good planning and as much clarity as possible. But there's some way. I think this is exactly the same with our practice. We do our best and then we let things be with what they are. You know, it's like the line from T.S. Eliot, the poem, he says, um, he says, ours is in the trying, the rest is not our business. Ours is in the trying, the rest is not our business. And that's so, so key for all of this that when one lives more and more with integrity, a lot of times it's not going to seem to work in a certain way. But uh, I'll, I'll just close with the idea I learned from uh, Michael Nagler, who set up, who is the founder of Peace and Conflict Studies at uh, UC Berkeley. And he is a teacher of nonviolence, and he distinguishes between two, I, two concepts of something working. And he says that uh, when you're actually coming from a good heart and have integrity, things are always working, but one doesn't always know what's happening. And sometimes, he says, it also works in the sense of work with quotation marks, meaning that um, it actually goes like you'd like it to go, or there's success. And so there are things when one's, and Thich Nhat Hanh says very similar language, things always work, are always working when one's coming with good qualities and good intentions. And, it, and sometimes it also works in quotation marks. <coughs> so that distinction is important. Okay, so um, let's sit for a moment and I'll close again with Mr. Uh, Whitman. We'll take this as our expression of uh, the dedication of merit for all beings. This is what you should do. Love the earth and sun and animals. Despise riches. Give alms to everyone that asks. Stand up for the stupid and crazy. Devote your income and labor to others. Hate tyrants. Argue not concerning God. Have patience and indulgence towards the people. Re-examine all you have been told in school or church or in any book. Dismiss what insults your very soul. And your flesh shall become a great poem and have the richest fluency not only in its words, but in the silent lines of its lips and face and between the lashes of your eyes and in every motion and joint of your body.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.